Amen. Amen. Well, hey, uh, happy Labor Day weekend. I don't know. Uh, I was just joking with some earlier. Like, if you have kids, it feels like, okay, we got into the school rhythm. And then, whoop, no, we don't. Like, we're, we got a couple of days extra off, and maybe it's already upended for you. Um, that doesn't really apply with a baby. So... I'm just on all the time. We're both on all the time. And so, but we are enjoying the extra time at home. I hope that you're enjoying some extra space in your calendar even to uh, hopefully rest and breathe. Some of you, uh, this is actually one of the first weekends you're back from camping or vacations or just traveling all over. So welcome. Uh, we're thankful that you're here as well. And today is a very, I have to say, unique day. I have never in eight years of kind of vocational ministry done what we're about to do. And that's just kind of like uh, we pulled together your questions over the last couple of weeks and said, all right, how do we tackle those in like 30 minutes? And I'm not going to be able to tackle all of them. But what we did is work as a staff and as a leadership team um, and even got feedback from some of you in, the con- in our congregation, just what are the most burning questions uh, that you have. And so Today, for the next few moments, is just Q&A Sunday. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, if you came like with 10 questions to just shout out and ask me, I'm sorry, that's, that happens once the service is over. So I'll hang around. You can ask me all those. Uh, that would be impossible to answer all of your questions with zero preparation. I'm not that smart. Uh, but what's interesting is what I wanted to do was give you a lens in which I, just as your pastor, am approaching these questions, and then give you a helpful tool with how to process some of these questions, and then we've kind of pulled together some of the very best and most common themes into two big questions, and then I have a question for you at the end, okay? So we'll tackle two questions, then I have a question for you. What I want to do is introduce you to something. This is going to feel like some Sundays are very preaching. They're, I'm trying to inspire you. I'm trying to communicate God's Word in a way that moves you to something. This is going to feel like I'm your professor, like, I'm your teacher today. And some of you are like, no, I have the week off from school, like, uh, which is okay. Or maybe your parents are like, I'm done with that. I moved on. But what I want to do is just kind of approach this in a posture of teaching. Like, we're having kind of this almost academic level conversation back and forth. And so uh, my daughter is supposed to sleep in the next 30 minutes. That's when nap time hits. So if you need to do that too, you're not going to offend me. Trust me. She'll be asleep out there somewhere. So someone will be sleeping with you. But I really do think... Uh, what I want to say is that I've been praying that God would work through this time in a unique way, because it is unique. We're not just uh, going through a series or picking whatever John wanted to talk about. You kind of picked what I talked about today, which is unique. So here's the first thing I want to introduce you to that I really think would be helpful. And uh, if you want to take notes, you can. If you just want to listen, you can. If you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to get it out now, or even just pull out your phone now if that's what you use. We're going to be in like five different passages to tackle some of these things, but they're all worth going back to. I know I say that a lot, but these really are kind of critical passages, specifically in the Gospels, that are worth reading back through because it'll give you helpful perspective I can't give you right now, like in this time frame. So here's the filter. Some of you uh, are aware that we're a Wesleyan church. So Wesley really was a kind of Methodist leader back in the 1700s who God used in a very, exactly, this kid's name, Wesley, you just pointed to him. Hi, Wesley. It's not him. So it's not Wesley Kamen, who's right here. Um, but thank you for being here, Wesley. I appreciate you. Um, but it actually is John Wesley, who for literally his entire life was a part of just this incredible awakening of God throughout Europe and then moved and translated that to the U.S. Uh, and we kind of are part of that network of churches around the globe called the Wesleyan Church. But he came up with something that I, the first day I heard it in college, 
I said, you know what? I'm probably going to use this. Like I'm probably, not everything I learned in college I use on a daily basis, probably true with you. But there was one thing I said, you know what? I will use this. This is a helpful filter. And he created this thing called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, which is really a, a big term, but really a filter for any time you get new information, whether it's an idea, a concept, a debate's going on, or you're, you're reading something in scripture, a way to filter through what you're learning. And so I want to walk through that first to tell you, here's how I even approach some of these questions, because it'll be helpful to you knowing where I'm starting from. And so the first pillar of this, and, and really the biggest pillar, uh, th- this trumps all other of these uh, filters, but it's the filter of scripture. So the basic question that I would ask, and I would encourage you to ask anytime you see uh, a Facebook post or you see an argument with a spouse going on, or, or you just see something new that you're trying to discover, is this true or not? Is this helpful or not? Is to look through the lens of scripture. Is to look back and say, is there anything scripture says about this particular issue, question, informational item, truth uh, in our world. And that's where you start. If it's, if it's not there, it's probably not helpful and it may not be true. And so can you find it in scripture? But then Wesley said, there's actually three other helpful filters. They're not as important as scripture, but they are helpful. And I want to kind of rapid fire through them and then we'll dive into question one. Uh, the first is tradition. So what have people before me in, in, in the Christian life, in the Christian faith believed about this thing? Because what I get really scared of sometimes is when anyone comes up to me and says, hey, no one has thought about this before. I'm like, that probably a bad idea. Then you probably shouldn't be thinking about it either. Or no one has thought about this issue this way before. Well, that's also probably not true. There's probably people literally for the last thousands of years who have followed in the way of Jesus, who maybe have wrestled with some of these things. Now, the contextual uh, space around them may be very different, but the tradition is there. What is what do the church fathers say? What does the early church believe? What does scripture believe? Like going back to the lens of tradition. The third is reason. And some of us are not wired logically thinkers. Like we're wired much more creative and artistic and very emotive. Um, I'm wired much more logically. So I think, does this make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, if it's not logical or have any reason to it, normally, at least for my life, that's a clue. Like, eh, you probably shouldn't believe that or probably shouldn't agree with that or probably shouldn't line up your life with that certain way of thinking or that concept. And so reason. Uh, some of you, that's a challenge. Some of you are naturally wired that way. You already think about it. Do things make sense, like analytically speaking? So it's a helpful tool for some of you. Others of you, that's how you kind of default think. The fourth is experience. So it's asking the question, does this line up with my experience of God so far? Now, your experience is not the first. Remember, the scripture is first. So you may say, well, God hates a certain group of people. And scripture may say, no, he doesn't. He loves them. So you will have moments where your life is in tension with scripture and tradition and reason. But experience would be just a general question of, does this, again, line up with how I've understood and how I've come to know God and how I've experienced him, whether it's in a service or a sermon or in a conversation with a friend, uh, does this line up with experience? If it doesn't, if you've never had this experience or you've never kind of stumbled upon this truth and experienced it for yourself, there may be a good moment to just take a pause and say, is this true? Is this right? Is this the way God would answer this question or address this circumstance? And so that's the first thing I want to say is that that is a helpful lens I use literally every day. When I'm watching the news, sometimes I think through this. Does this line up with scripture? 
Does this line up with tradition, recent experience, or is this just totally outside of the realm of all of those things? And the second thing I want to say is I have a unique position as a pastor to be what I would call an independent observer. So in these questions, I have zero skin in the game. Now, I think they matter, and I think I've wrestled with them even the last year, but I don't think uh, I have a specific bent towards one side or the other. I tried my best to look at these objectively and say, what is this, what is this filter we're using? What does this say in response to these questions? And so I just wanted to let you know that I don't have an agenda. I don't have a goal. I don't have like an application point. I'm going to drop a bomb on you at the end. It's just like, I don't really have skin in the game. I think these are helpful questions. And I think scripture does speak to them in a very uh, profound way. And so question number one, we're going to start out super easy. Okay. Question number one, what is the church's role in the world, community, and politics. <laughs> How about we just start light? Okay, like, let's just start easy. None of you are going to be mad at me. Like, let's just start real easy. Uh, what's funny is, is so many of the questions, again, I had to do my best to kind of categorize some of these things. But a lot of the questions you asked were questions about how does our congregation, how does, how does our, like, our kind of role as the people of God, how does that interact in the world? With like, what role do we play in Afghanistan right now? What role do we play in Haiti right now? What role do we play in our community, like Byron Center, Granville, Kentwood, Wyoming, wherever you're coming from? Like, what's our role in this community? And the third question is, what's our role, kind of the political sphere? Like, what role does my faith, my my church, my pastor? What role do those all play in in, the, in kind of the realm of politics? There were questions like, why do we preach what we preach? What's the church's role? in salvation, or is my relationship with God just personal? Questions like, how do I grow in my relationship with Jesus in this hard time in our country? Questions, again, easy ones, like, should the church defy government mandates? So there were questions like that. I said, okay, we got to figure out a way, how do we synthesize these into what I think scripture addresses and what I think is most helpful? And I'm going to, I'm going to let you know up front, I'm going to disappoint you already because I'm not going to be able to address every single question, every single scripture that is probably relevant. But what I want to talk about is kind of the two answers I'd give to that question. Number one, I want to talk to the, how do we practically grow during this time? And then I want to talk about what's the church, like what is our function in this time? So how do we grow personally? And then how does the church function? How should we interact in those spaces? Now, the first kind of response is say, when you say, how do we practically grow in discipleship? Like what's the church's role in that? I would say two things. Number one, uh, the church is not the only place that you are spiritually formed. Everyone hear me? Like the church is not the only place you are spiritually formed. Now, I think the church exists in the world. And I think you see us all over the course of scripture to be kind of the center of that. And I think so many of you, by nature of you sitting here, you kind of get that. You're understanding, okay, there is something spiritual that takes place when I show up to church. It's not just I get to see my friends or I get to, to sit in an air-conditioned room or whatever. I get, it's, it's more than that. But there are spaces outside of your world that you can be spiritually formed. This is the pattern of Jesus as well, right? If you read the gospel stories for three and a half years, Jesus didn't just take the, those guys to church every day. He was walking. He was in the temple courts. He was interacting with political leaders. He was healing people. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was casting out demonic forces that were at work in their communities. Like that was what Jesus was about. And so this is not the only place you're spiritually formed. I think that's important to remember. But the, the responsibility all of us have when it come to, comes to our spiritual journey 
And this is just kind of the simple way I've thought about it. If you want to kind of capture this and think about it and maybe disagree with me later, that's fine. But our role in our own spiritual formation is to place ourselves in places to encounter God. So, so your role as a disciple of Jesus, as an adult or growing student or, or a kid even, is to, at whatever level you can, is to place yourselves in places you can encounter God. Now, if you want to be formed but not spiritually formed, you can find yourself in a lot of environments over the, over the weekend. Like you may be, at, you may have been hungover from last night still, and you're like, I don't really know why I'm here. But, but at the end of the day, every single place you find yourself, whether that's kind of in, in the way you spend your time or the actual location is forming you. Whether it's cable news or the Bible, you are being formed by somebody, by something. And so the responsibility we all have in our own discipleship is to place ourselves in places to encounter God. There's two things I would say, if you are struggling with this, or you're trying to figure out how do I set some new rhythms for the fall, which I'm doing, like I'm trying to figure out, okay, I've got a newborn, I've got a different schedule, I've got class, I've got all these different things. I've got to find some new rhythms. There's two words that have been helpful for me, and they may be helpful for you. The first word is intention. Like your formation and discipleship to Jesus will not happen by accident. And, and I hate to say it, I can't do that for you either. Like that is kind of my role is to help spiritually shepherd our community. But at the end of the day, I can't control what you do with the other six days, like 160 whatever hours it is that you have that you're not in this space or we're not in conversation. So it takes intention. The second is just consistency. Let me just free, some of you need to be freed from a, a thought. I'm going to free you right now. I'm going to give you a scriptural lens to think through this. Some of you get so hung up, and some of us, I, I've been here too, get hung up on the fact that we can't spend an hour alone in quietness, like in kind of a Buddhist state in our closet before God, like how do I just get away and meditate, that we don't do it at all. We don't even try. But what if the, the, the key to freeing us from that is saying, but what can I do that's consistent? For some of you, that's a school drop-off. You have like five minutes of quiet what if you leverage that to say, God, I just want to meet with you right now. I just, I believe that you're always speaking. You're always working. I need to hear from you. So I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to listen to a song or I'm going to pray. For some of you, you're in that stage of kind of retirement or quasi-retirement. You've got more margin, but maybe it's not always practical to set a full day aside. What if you took the morning? What if you took the afternoon? What if you took the night to just say, God, I just want to focus on you. I'm going to read something. I'm going to have a conversation. I'm going to uh, confess something to you. I'm going to turn uh, my gaze towards you. So intention and consistency. Uh, I was reading this morning. We were just praying together before service. And one of the, the passages that just sticks out to me so greatly is when Jesus, in the very first chapter of Mark, it says he healed all these people. I think it's like Mark 1, kind of middle of the chapter. Uh, I think about things in terms of where they are in my physical Bible. <laughs> so when you ask me a chapter verse, I'm like, I know where it is. I don't really know what it is, but I know where it is. So I was struggling with that this morning, so I had to Google it. And so I know where it is in my Bible, but it's kind of in the middle of the gospel of Mark. It says Jesus healed and, and did all these things. The, the disciples are all with him. They go to sleep. And then it says, while, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a mountainside to pray. And at first I thought, man, Jesus is just a natural early riser. That's not easy for me. Like I set two alarms this morning because it's not super easy for me to always get up early. 
But I don't think that was a accident that Jesus did that. I don't think he had technology to even have an alarm in that moment. What I think Jesus had was a pattern of intentionality and consistency to be with God. Like he needed that. As someone who's fully God and fully man, Jesus still had a need to make the Father his source. Like Jesus didn't just randomly wake up at 4 a.m. And then the disciples find him like, hey, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing praying by yourself? It's so early. We need to get on the way. Like we're, we're going somewhere. And, and Jesus just doesn't care. Like I love that about Jesus. Sometimes he genuinely does not care what we think or what we ask because he's got something greater on his mind. He's got some bigger plan. And so intention and consistency. Now let's talk about the church. So what role does the church play in the world community and politics? Uh, here's where you'll probably get offended at me, and that's totally fine. I've been here long enough. You're not going to make me mad. You can say anything you want. What I think is interesting is there's a lot of different angles to take on this question. This is a loaded question. And so you're going to have to give me the umbrella of, of grace in these answers because it's just so short. But here's one thing I want to say. And I think, again, I'm trying my best to, to filter through these lenses. When the church acts like the church, there's nothing like it. Now, you've experienced that, hopefully, on some level, even being around here. When the church acts like the church, there's nothing like it. But when the church acts like the culture, there's a thousand better versions. Like if we just get swept into fighting the same fights or thinking the same way or prioritizing kind of the same things, uh, we are just doing kind of a counterfeit job of what the culture is already better at doing. We don't need to, to think about ourselves that way. But when the church acts like the church, when when we model ourselves after the intention and design of how Jesus built his people and built his community, there's nothing like it in the world. Like I've given my entire life and vocation because I believe that. Like I've, I've staked my life on that reality. And here's what I want to say too. Um, at the end of the day, and here's where we're going to get into scripture. And we already talked about Mark, but we're going to go back there. If you have a Bible, uh, Mark 3, we're going to just read from verse 1. Uh, none of these will be on the screen. So if you want to engage with it, you have to do it for yourself. In Mark 3, here's what we read in verse 1. This is another time Jesus went to the synagogue. This is after uh, he has this conversation about the Sabbath. He's healed some people. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Quick pause. Uh, the reason they're doing that is because in Jewish law, you did not work, heal, anything that took like exertion or energy on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, these religious leaders who didn't have the mind of God, but had the mind of themselves and what they could gain were waiting and watching. Let's just see if Jesus will slip up here. Like we know he cares more about people than our law. So let's just find him this one moment that he does it. And so Jesus said to the man, this is like the next verse, with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. So Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. He was healed. But remember, it was on the Sabbath. Wrong day for healing, apparently, in Jerusalem. This is the wrong time to be doing this. Then, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how to, how to lift up and, and make Jesus an awesome person. 
Now, if you read it, you saw that that's not what happens. Like, that's not how the scripture reads. Like, that's not even the paraphrased version of the Bible. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wait a second. Why did the Herodians, these people who had a political agenda, why did they want to kill Jesus? We're three chapters into the gospel. What, are, what did he do? I mean, to me, I'd be saying, man, you healed someone in my community. Good job. Like, I'm proud of you. You're a great rabbi. I guess I'll follow you. But that's not what happens. They, they actually begin to plot to kill Jesus. And here's why. Jesus disrupted the religious system of his day. He, he looked at the religious systems and said, you know what? I don't know if these are actually helping people to commune with God, to be changed and transformed. And so we've got to disrupt some things. And that's what he does. He, he doesn't play by their rules. They want to fit him into kind of a neat identity or political category or religious system that they can figure Jesus out. And Jesus is like, you can't figure me out. Like, like all I want to do, I want to communicate the love of God. I want to heal people. I want to bring justice to the nations. He talks about that in the very first sermon he ever gives in a synagogue and so when, what should the church's role in our world and community specifically look like, even in politics look like? I think the, the phrase alternative community comes to mind. Alternative community. Now, I can't speak for every church on the planet. I can't speak for every church in Byron Center. I can't speak for every church experience that you've personally had. But at the end of the day, the church is at its very best when it is acting and functioning in our world and our communities like an alternative community. And the, and the ver, like kind of the vision and mission of that alternative community is found all throughout the gospel stories. Jesus even says this, Mark 1, 15, I have come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, repent and believe in the gospel. And so if you're asking me, what is this alternative community supposed to do? Like if you boil down everything we do during the week or, or in just the rhythms of our life, it would be to proclaim the gospel in words and in our lives. If you're asking me, why does the church at the very end of the day exist? Why is it still on earth? Jesus, and I believe scripture, and I would definitely say as your pastor, it would be to proclaim the gospel in your words. Like you, it can't just be with your actions. It actually takes your words. Like if, if you ask me, do you love Lindsay? I say, sure. And then you ask her and she says, well, he loves me with actions, but he doesn't ever tell me he loves me. You'd be like, John, you need to fix your marriage. <laughs> like, you don't actually love Lindsay. You need to say it with your words, too. Like, there's something powerful about words, but it can't just be words. Now, some of us grew up in church uh, environments and, and even perspectives where it just was words. It, it was just the truth. It was just kind of hard teaching and hard, rigid structures and behavior patterns and trying to just make sure you don't sin too bad until you get out into college, and then you can sin bad, and then you don't sin bad again after that, or figure yourself out, or have some kids, you kind of get balanced out. Like, we grew up in that environment, but it also takes action. Like, if you are repeating the same destructive patterns as when you first started following Jesus, the question would be, are you still following Jesus? Are you still following this risen king we sang about who resurrects things in our life, who makes them whole? So I think this alternative community's goal is to proclaim the gospel. Here's what I'll say, and you've probably felt this. I know I felt this the last couple of years. Doing this well, like trying to, to live this out truthfully, rarely are we going to fit into the neat political boxes or identities of our culture. And I would say that's perfectly in line with Jesus. 
Jesus was constantly getting in trouble with Pharisees because they, he couldn't get into their box. He wouldn't step into their identity. He wouldn't let them figure him out. The second part of that is what I think most of us struggle with, and I, this is my struggle too. Everything I'm saying I wrestle with is that we should not be frustrated for, at the world. So I would say people who are not followers, we shouldn't be frustrated at the world for acting like the world more than we are frustrated about Jesus' followers not acting like disciples. Can I say that one more time? Like, we should not be frustrated at the world. And I've been frustrated at our world. I've been frustrated at our government. I've been frustrated at some of you, and I'm just kidding. But I've been frustrated at people, like, over the last couple years, specifically. Uh, But we should not be frustrated at the world for acting like the world. Like, I'm not mad at Lennon for not knowing how to walk. She doesn't know how to walk. She's not there yet. Like, you should not be mad, maybe, at the, the people in your life who don't know Jesus yet for not acting, for acting like they don't know Jesus yet. But we should focus that energy, focus some of that uh, holy frustration around, man, not everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ is acting like that right now. I'm frustrated at that. I think that's totally fair. And my job is to not just be frustrated at people outside of my own life or outside of my own control, but it's to look inward and say, man, I should be frustrated at my own sin that's still there. Like I was praying earlier, I've been been following Jesus for 10 years. There's still some things that are broken and not perfect. And I should be frustrated at that. And I am sometimes really frustrated at that. Other times I'm frustrated that I'm not frustrated at that. That I just let things go and I'm passive. And so instead of focusing energies and all of our, our attention around the world for acting like it's the world, I think some of those energies could be self-directed and say, God, where in me is there still transformation needed? Where in me is there still a change that you want to work? So that's question one. Okay, question two plays into this. And I think it is a very important question. Question two is what is persecution? And are we experiencing it as Jesus followers in America, as American Christians, people who live in this country? None of you that I last checked fly in from other countries. You're all here, like you're all American citizens or have lived here long enough to be a resident of America. So that's a great question. What is persecution and are American Christians experiencing this? The questions that are kind of baked into this one, I tried to, again, synthesize, were how should we respond to COVID-19 restrictions on churches? Uh, constitution versus president. Which one do we follow? When has the government overstepped its bounds? Why did our church stop meeting physically in 2020? Again, we're getting easier, okay? Like the, the progression is towards easier and less divisive. But it's funny because that those are important questions. Those are important questions for me as a leader. They're important questions for you as a disciple. And I want to try my best to address these. I want to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so I'm going to take a minute and just kind of scan over there. And I would encourage you to do the same because this is a really powerful uh, lens to look at this through. Uh, Timothy was a young leader leading a church in a very difficult place. Ephesus was not super friendly to Christians. Uh, They had issues. And so he's this young leader put in charge of this church plant. And Paul, who all of us probably have at least heard the name, was this terrorist turned church leader, church planter throughout the Roman area, uh, is giving him this final charge in this letter. In verse 10... 2 Timothy 3 says, you, talking about Timothy, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patient love, and endurance, persecutions, sufferings, 
What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I think that's an interesting lens to look at this question through for for a bunch of reasons. But primarily, what Scripture never promises is that anyone who follows Jesus is not going to face persecution. It's actually the opposite. The promise from Jesus in, in the Gospel of John and other places, and even Paul to Timothy, kind of in the footsteps of Jesus, is that if you're a Christ follower, there are going to be moments where you come to friction and there's tension with our culture that we live in. And I think what's important to understand as well is that there's, I can't get into all this, but there's an enormous difference between persecution and discrimination. Persecution and discrimination. Uh, Let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm going to be, again, totally candid with you, and I'm trying to be as honest as possible. But at the end of the day, you're not just here to hear me. You're here to hear from God. And so what I do think, if you're just asking me, John, if you just sat down like over a cup of coffee, told me what you really think, here's what I really think. I really think that there are sectors of society, not everywhere, but sectors of society where being a Christian, you can be discriminated against. I'm not oblivious to that. I think there's certain sectors. I think there's certain industries, jobs, even markets in which to to be known as a Christ follower is not going to get you any points with your boss, not going to get you a promotion, not going to get you like in the best place with HR because you'll be considered intolerant or, or aggressive or all of these different things. I do think there's some places, and I do think there's some places coming that being a Christian, being a true disciple of Jesus will cost us in America. Now, here's what I want to say. I don't think we're fully there yet. I I wouldn't even say that right now as a church leader, I feel persecuted against or that our churches are being persecuted. I mean, some of it is I have a unique lens. Some of it is, I I remember I've shared the story with so many of you. Uh, 2009, my freshman year, or sorry, 2005, my freshman year of high school, my parents came to us and said, hey, we feel like God is calling us to live in Baku, Azerbaijan for a year. And I said, where the heck is that? (laughs) I don't even know how to pronounce that. I don't even know where that is. It's this speck of a country that kind of nestled between Russia, Georgia, Armenia, and Iran. It's about two hours uh, north of Iran. I said, well, that should be really interesting. Like, I uh, can't wait. This is like on the heels of 9-11. A couple years later, I'm like, oh, that sounds really fun. Like, go to a 99% Muslim country. What's going to go wrong? And, and so we're there, and numerous stories. Like, we were kind of serving undercover in, uh, with this organization. And while we were there, I mean, there was missionaries who were kidnapped at knife point out of their taxi because people found out and had tracked them that they were trying to spread the name of Jesus. There were churches that were closed. I remember one of the first times we went to like a house church in Azerbaijan. We had our family was a family of six. Like you can't miss us. So we were pretty obvious, and we're all white in a, in a non-white area. Like it's pretty easy to find. And, and the church leader said, "If you're going to come, you have to go like in ones or twos, because if you find a big group, they will find us, shut us down, imprison us, harass us, uh, come after us in our jobs." So you can't, you can't kind of give us away, basically. That, to me, as a freshman in high school, is like, wait, what? Like, I grew up in Caledonia, Michigan. It's like the most churchy area I've ever found. Like, what? You're saying I can't, we can't all go at the same time? Like, now the struggle is, how do we all go at the same time? But it's for a lot of different reasons. Like, that, to me, was a kind of indicator. And so I think through that lens, still having friends who serve there, still having people who are doing ministry there, kind of 
underground, people that have been kicked out of other countries because they were found out that they were Christians. Uh, to me, I think it's interesting as you look at the global church, again, we're not, today we're kind of talking through our context, but there's a lot bigger story that we're a part of. I mean, the global church around the world is, is flourishing and thriving. Uh, but here's some, some sobering statistics I just want to give you. And I don't say this to shame anyone, I just say this to give us context. 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month around the world. That's not in Byron Center, Michigan. Uh, I don't know any that have died uh, as martyrs in America in the recent, recent past. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every single month. Arson, vandalism, uh, just destruction. 772 forms of violence. Some, some of those are beatings, kidnappings, rape, arrests are committed against Christians every month. Again, almost all those statistics are outside of America. And so I'm not saying that it's, that it's getting increasingly difficult to be a Christian in America, but I'm saying you and I are not there yet. You, you and I have not experienced that degree. If anything, I'd say uh, there's something that the global church understands about following Jesus through suffering that some of us don't understand. And, and I think there's something to learn from that. Here's what I want to say in response to some of those other questions uh, when has the government kind of overstepped its bounds? And so this is being live streamed, so I don't know. I'm sure no one's watching me, but I'm just going to talk as if they are. Uh, what I would say is when the government has overstepped its bounds to me, and even what I see in the scriptures, even when I think about the, the country and the context we live in. So again, this is not like an application to the entire global church. I think we're in a different scenario. To me, I start to get nervous when a government begins to remove religious liberties from, from any faith, not, not just Christianity, but just any faith, because I think that puts us in a very tough spot. I think that puts churches in a tough spot. I think that puts just how faith interacts in a community and a democracy puts us in a tough spot. And what I mean by removing religious liberty is someone would have to say, like, I'm not worried about tax exemptions or anything like that. What I am worried about is someone came and said, you cannot preach the gospel anymore. You cannot share your faith anymore. You cannot have uh, the ability, John, as a disciple of Jesus, to share that with people without fear of imprisonment or persecution or death or anything like that, which is the reality for most of the world already. And so I feel incredibly fortunate that we are, that we're able to serve and do ministry in a community like this because I don't think about that. Like I, I worry sometimes about how to get people to church. I'm not worried about if they come, will they die? Those are very different realities. And uh, one thing I want to read as well is in Galatians. So again, I told you we're jumping around. This is a great passage to flag and go back to. Uh, Galatians is one of my favorite letters from Paul. But in Galatians 5.13, this is what he writes to this church. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another, in, uh, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, which is intense language, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say walk by the Spirit. The, the, second, that, um, the second that sometimes our own liberties, our own American perspective on freedom trumps what it means to be free in Christ, we're in trouble. Like that is the ultimate freedom. You can't buy that. You can't legislate that. No one can take that from you either. Now, we, I just said, I think there's some places where we can get in this, into sketchy ground when it comes to the government and how we're able to practice faith. But at the end of the day, if you are free in Christ, you are free for others, not just free. There's actually an obligation 
to our freedom. Paul talks in, in multiple places in the book of Romans, this, again, letter to Roman churches about the ability to be a slave to Christ. Like they had been enslaved to bondage and broken patterns and sin, but then God rescued them out. But now it's not just rescued and we get to do whatever we want. It's actually rescued for something and for somebody. It's, it's free for others, not just ourselves. And if you want to look at an example of someone giving up personal privileges and liberties and freedoms on behalf of other people, look at Philippians 2. Like if that idea makes you mad or makes you uncomfortable, look at what Jesus says in Philippians 2. It literally says he gave up every divine privilege, every advantage he had over us, laid it down, washed our feet, served us, was willing to be obedient all the way to the point of death on a cross. And in result, God glorified him, exalted him, made him the name above every other name. So at the end of the day, we don't answer ultimately to government leaders, even though we should serve, pray, and submit in some ways. In other ways, we won't. But we should allow Jesus to be the very ultimate freedom, the very ultimate pursuit of our lives. Okay, now that you're all confused, you got 15 questions for me after, I have a question for you. And then we're going to wrap this up. The question for you, and I do think this is the most important question I can ask, is what will you do with the gospel this fall? I'm not asking what kind of culture war will we engage in. And there may be some that we need to in the future. I don't know. I'm not asking you, do you feel persecuted or discriminated? I'm not asking you, do you have people in your life who are living in ways that frustrate you? Because that would be true of all of us. But I am asking you, the most important question we can wrestle with is, what will you do with the gospel this fall? What will you do with Jesus' words? What will you do with his way? What will you do with his life, his perspective, his, his way of being, his rhythms? Another passage we can't get into, but really at the end of the day, the gospel is so much, so for some of us, the gospel ends up being about our past. It's like, I was saved and now I just kind of not really sure what I'm doing. For others of us, it's present. And we're not really sure, well, I'm following Jesus now, but I don't know what that means for the future. Others of us, it's just future. It's like, man, I can literally do whatever I want, but as long as I can get to heaven, that's like the goal. And some of us grew up with that. Like, you may have grown up a little bit like me. Like, the, the gospel was, hey, do you want to go to heaven with mom and dad or burn a hell by yourself? <laughs> like, that was the, like, if you boiled it down, that was kind of it. It's like, what kid wouldn't want to choose the first option? I was like, uh, not the second one. Like, I'll go with the first one. Like, it was pretty simple for me as a seven-year-old to figure out, I don't want to do that second half. And, and I know our, our kids seem to do a much better job of proclaiming the gospel uh, through Danny and her leaders than that. So I'm not worried about our church. But really, the, the gospel at the end of the day is not just about our past, even though it transforms our past. It can redeem our past. It's not just about our present. Like, it's not just strength for just this moment, and that's it. And, and it's not even just about our future. Like, it's, it's literally all of those. It redeems our past. It gives us hope in our present, and it transforms our destinies and our futures. It changes the way we think about life. It's so much bigger. At the end of the day, if you ask, why is the church here? What role does it play? Whether it's persecuted, discriminated, or not, I would say it's, again, to proclaim the gospel in our words and in our actions. And I, I was hit by this. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was sitting with Charlie, who's playing bass today, served at our church, very faithful. Some of you know Charlie. And, and he was talking to me about the story. He just kind of felt when we opened this building that, that he should be available on Thursdays with free coffee and just if people want to talk. And so he's been faithfully in this lobby doing that. And uh, 
was feeling a little bit discouraged about like, man, there hasn't been a ton of people that came. I'm not sure what to do, but knew like, okay, I need to keep going. I need to keep being consistent. I need to keep doing things with intentionality. And so he's sitting there on a Thursday morning and this person kind of walks up and we were joking about how when you have a church facility, like people, especially when it's next to a dog groomer or a nail salon, like what kind of church is that? <laughs> like, what are you guys doing in there? I'm kind of curious now. And I, I remember it was in here before. Like you guys still do that? Or like, how does that work? And, uh, and this lady comes up to the door. She kind of knocks on the door. She's looking around, like trying to figure things out. She opens the door and Charlie comes up to greet her. Uh, and she just says, hey, I just was wondering, can anyone come here? Can anyone show up here? Or do you have like rules and like regulations for who gets to come to church here? And Charlie was able to walk with her and just talk with her a little bit about the kind of church we are becoming, the kind of church that hopefully is known in our community as salt and light, the kind of church that doesn't get caught up in some of the peripheral things, but looks to Jesus as our way of doing life. And, and, and I don't know, maybe she'll come next weekend. I don't know if we'll never see her again, but that's not the point. The point is, there are people in our community, in our lives, who need to know that God has a better way for them, that, that this life is not all that there is, that, this, that their existence, their hope doesn't have to be in temporal things like their job or their car or their lawn. It's so much bigger than that. And so for me, that's the ultimate question is, what are we going to do with that this fall? Will, will we respond to that? Or will we get caught up in so many other things that will distract and lead us Away. I want to pray for us, and then we're just going to sing a, a brief song in response and then ha- head out and enjoy the rest of this weekend. But I want that question to mess with you this weekend. What will I do with the gospel? Because it's, it's not a neutral thing. You either do something with it or you do not. And so I want to pray for us and just ask, God, would you do that in me? So, Father, we do thank you that you are at pr- you're at work, you are present. And even with some of these big questions that are so hard to navigate and figure out, our deepest prayer is that you would make us like you and that in that you would allow us to be the kind of people who carry the very essence and, and the hope of the gospel into our work, into our school, into the places that we hang out, into the places we get gas or buy groceries. We thank you for some of these things we've talked about. We thank you that you've given us a role in our world that you've given us a role in our community. You've given us a role in politics. You've given us a role when it comes to how we suffer and how we interact with with government leaders. And so, God, we just pray right now that you'd allow us to have hearts that are open to what you want to do in us and in our church this fall. We surrender to you, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close and just respond to God together.